Again, we're glad you're here. Welcome, and uh, so good to have you at the worship of Downtown Presbyterian, and that was our pastor, Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. We are, um, just to let you know, it it is a a different sort of service, and most of the normal pieces of what we do on a Sunday are here, but, uh, but we moved some things around because we are going to ordain and install new officers this morning, and historically we've done this Sunday nights at a separate service, and the pattern has been that uh, the new officers and their families and 10 other people come. And so we thought, we want you as a church body to see this happen. And it's even in some ways maybe a way to learn more about our church and how this stuff works and what elders and deacons are and what they're called to. So anyway, we hope this can all be part of our worship together uh, to the Lord. So before that, we're going to look at God's Word. We're, th- we're into our third week of a series that we're doing in September and October about a disciple's life. And uh, I'm probably going to say this in some form every week, but the word that we typically use about someone who professes belief in Jesus and professes to follow Jesus is that that man or woman or child is a Christian. And that term is in the New Testament a little bit, not much, just, just a few times But the word disciple is used repeatedly. Jesus, Jesus, when he gave his marching orders to the apostles, when he was risen from the dead and about to return to God the Father, he said, make disciples all over the world. So here we are in this other continent, this other nation, and we profess to believe in Jesus. Jesus and the apostles would call us disciples. I'm not assuming that's you. I never assume that everybody here is a Christian, but for those who do, you're a disciple. So what, what are we called to? What is the normal life of a disciple? Not the top 10% or the elite, but what does a disciple's life look like? So we're going to take a week apiece on some of the basics and really draw more from the gospel of Mark, but we'll reach for some other places too. This morning, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 35. You can just follow in the bulletin there if you want to. And I don't know if you've ever read anything by a real Puritan, not a pretend Puritan like in the Nathaniel Hawthorne stories, but a real English Puritan. And one thing that they love to do in their writings and their sermons is use analogies and kind of draw spiritual analogies from physical realities, physical examples, and sometimes even from your own, your own body, your own natural condition. So I'm going to try to harness my inner Puritan this morning and, and do the same. There are things that you do as, a, as an embodied person that are counterintuitive. And if you had not been taught this, you, you probably wouldn't think of it on your own. And I, here's one example. Sometimes when you have a headache, now I'm saying sometimes, there's lots of ways to have a headache and there's all kinds of severity of headaches and migraines are their own thing. But sometimes... When you have a headache, what you'll feel like is, I, right now I most need um, like a, a cool cloth on my head, or I need to just rest and sleep, or I need to take ibuprofen or an aspirin, or I need some kind soul to just do this on the side of my head or something. And those all might bring relief, but sometimes what you need to do when you have a headache is hydrate. You need to drink water. And that's not, it's not like when your head is hurting, you would naturally think, what I need in my life are several glasses of water. But that can be true. 
All right, think about that as a parallel to this morning for something that everybody in this room deals with. And we, we pull this off differently. I think we would say it differently. And it really gets into something very personal about our lives. This, this is not the kind of thing you usually broadcast. This is best friend talk, uh, very close family member talk. This is vulnerable. But we want to matter. We want to matter. You know, we, just, we, we started off our worship with that song, 10,000 Reasons. And you know that final stanza when the music came down, the, the, the stanza was acknowledging, one day I'm going to die. My strength will fail. My time will come to an end. So that's there. And, you know, I, I'm not saying necessarily that I want to be famous. You know, or you would probably say, I'm not saying I want to be, well, I kind of want to be famous. But I want, you know, we would say it different ways. I want impact. I want meaning. I, 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 I want my life to have mattered. I don't want to die and then months later it's like I was never there. But how do you do that? And I'm going to get to this in a second because I think sometimes it's tempting for Christians, I would say especially like for a preacher type, a teacher type, it's tempting to kind of come and say, hey, why do you have to be such a big shot? You don't have to matter. God needs to matter. And at one level that's true, but we know that we need to matter. We know that we want to matter. But how do you do it? And Jesus says here something that it wouldn't wouldn't come naturally to us. Let's put it that way. He says this is the way to matter. This is the way, though, even though we might not use this word, here's the way to be great. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospels, and thank you not only for 
the words and the deeds of Jesus that we find there, but even what people were saying to him and how they responded to him and how he surprised them and how they misunderstood or they heard or they were transformed or they were infuriated. And Lord, all of us come like that and pray that you would show us Jesus and in showing Jesus you would even open our eyes to our own condition. We ask this in his name. Amen. About a month and a half ago, I was listening to a podcast and it was it was two master interviewers having a conversation. I guess one was interviewing the other. The one who was Doing the interviewing is a guy named Cal Fussman, and I don't know if he still does, but he used to write for Esquire magazine and just is regarded as a master uh, drawer out of people, you know, to draw draw them out, draw out their hearts, draw out their their thoughts. And he's thinking about starting a podcast, so this was like a trial-run podcast, and the first person he was interviewing was Larry King, who is regarded as master interviewer of, of all time. So at one point, Larry King was talking about in his house, he has a vanity room. And you've, you've heard of this before, or maybe you have one, I don't know. But, you know, this is where, like, the trophies, the awards, the photos with famous people go. And so you can imagine the kind that he has having talked to everybody. And he even said that the award he has that frustrates him is the Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, when you get the Lifetime Achievement Award, it means that you, you have reached the zenith. You are at the top of your craft, your field. And he said, it just bothers me because they give it to you, and there's more lifetime. You're like, what do I aim for after the Lifetime Achievement Award? Should I just, like, get the award and go straight to the cemetery? So then he talks about that. And here, now, I'm quoting here. So first, Larry King speaking to Cal Fussman. Larry King says, about an octave lower than my voice, the thing I fear the most is death because I can't imagine not existing. That drives me bonkers. Cal Fussman says, we were talking about this at breakfast and we're all energy. Larry King says, I don't know what you mean by that. Cal Fussman says, that's what we are. We're, we're energy. And so you're still going to be floating around somewhere, somehow. I have a feeling that you never go away. And then Larry King says, he kind of like confronts him, and he calls him Fussman. doesn't call him Cal. He says, I'm not there. You understand, Fussman? I don't exist, and that bugs me. So he's speaking in the present tense about what will it be like when I'm dead. At that point, I don't exist, and that bugs me now. And, and, and kudos for honesty, you know, kudos for candor. Not just feeling it, but saying it out loud. It's, it's, it's fairly rare that somebody reaches the heights that Larry King reached in their particular profession, their calling. And you've got him saying, I've got a room to, to, to demonstrate. I've hit all my marks. I've surpassed all my marks. And I'm not dead yet, but it, but it frightens me. And it frightens me it, because he says in the interview, I don't believe in God. And he wasn't disrespectful of it. He says his wife does, but he says, I don't. And I can't get there. I can't believe. And I don't think anything happens to you after you die. But that bothers me. 
because then it doesn't matter. And, and here's what I want to throw out, and I want to try to develop, is that at some level God put that inside of us. It actually says in the book of Ecclesiastes that he put eternity in our hearts. Because we've heard that it's good to be humble, you know, because maybe we've known a humble person, we know that I don't need to just kind of be walking around with my shoulders squared all the time talking about how great I want to be and asking, like, you know, how do I achieve greatness in my life? But it's still in there. So whether you, whether you use the, the language of I want to have meaning, I want my life to matter, or you actually say I want greatness, we want greatness, all right? We want it. So how do you get it, and what does it look like? Here's what I want to try to unpack. There's two points. The greatness we want and the way to greatness. The greatness we want. And you know, the hope is, I just, I hope that when we look at, at passages like the disciples, you know, the apostles, it's so, it's so easy to make them into cartoon characters. You know, like, wow, they had just unfettered access to Jesus, and look at the stupid thing they did, and look at the stupid thing that they said. Man, I'm glad that we're not going to be that stupid. And, and I hope that to whatever degree you've had time in the Gospels around passages like this, that you'll see, that we'll see ourselves in them. Okay, what happens? The greatness we want. Let's start off in verse 35. Now, this James and John, just so you know who they are, they're brothers. We met them early in the Gospel of Mark. Or if you're reading Mark, you would hit them at the very beginning. And they're part of Jesus' inner circle. That might sound elitist to us, but you you see in the Gospels, sometimes Jesus will pull off separately with Peter and James and John. Same two guys. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, my children would know better than to say that to me. I want you to give me a blank check with unlimited funds. And uh, beware of trying to set the terms with Jesus in the conversation. Verse 36, he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 37, and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, we're just sort of parachuting into this passage, so I want to tell you one thing that's, that, should, that should be kept in mind. This is Mark 10. In the chapter before, Mark chapter 9, is an account of what we call the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is when Jesus took his inner circle, Peter and James and John, with him up a mountain... And we don't know how long, but for whatever it was, a few seconds, a few minutes, he looked like what he's always been and what he always will be. He looked like God the Son, equal in power and glory to God the Father. And the divine voice and the, and the divine glory cloud came on the mountain. The divine voice said, listen to him. So, I mean, they've seen plenty up to that point to know he's special, but now they know he is divine. So when James and John, who saw that up close and personal, when they, they know this is the one who's going to be the king of the earth. So they ask him, when you're the king of the earth, wherever you set up shop, they would assume Jerusalem and you sit on your throne, can I sit on your right 
and can he sit on your left? And the other apostles overheard them. And so what happened? Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why are they indignant at James and John? Is it because they're spiritually minded and they know, hey, in Jesus' kingdom, the economy is not power or having a seat at the table. In Jesus' kingdom, you know, life is service and humility and giving. And le- is, that, is that why they're upset? Let me dip out of this chapter one more time. Mark chapter 9, it says that all the, dis- uh, the disciples and Jesus, they're walking down the road. It kind of sounds like either he's ahead of them or behind them. And they get into a big animated conversation. And Jesus says, what were you talking about on the road? And you know that nervous feeling you get when somebody has seen you do something you didn't want to be seen or they've heard something that you didn't want them to hear? And they probably felt that because what they were talking about is who's the greatest apostle. And Jesus takes that moment to talk to them about how life in the kingdom is service. Greatness is through lowliness. And then what happens next? James and John kind of get him, I guess, out of earshot and say, yeah, anyway, when you're enthroned, and the, the other, you know, the other ten, all right, twelve apostles minus two, the other ten here, and it bothered them. Why did it bother them? I mean, it seems that the pattern is not they're bothered because it cut against their spiritual instincts. It was that they want to sit there. Why would you ask the master if you can sit there? Again, I think the temptation, when we see that, and when we look at ourselves, the temptation is to run ahead and say, why do you have to be great? Why do you have to matter? Why does anybody need to remember that you live beside your family five years after you die? Why, why, why do you have to matter so much? But here's the thing. If, if the only source of your self-understanding was just the Bible. Like, in other words, I'm gonna, let me use the technical term that a college would use. If the only book you had for anthropology was the Bible, here's the kind of thing that you would, this would help form your anthropology. This is from a psalm. This is the psalmist talking to God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet... You have made him, human beings, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's one passage about human beings. And it's hard to feel this when you have aches and pains and you make big mistakes and you, you know, sometimes just walk around in a t-shirt, but we're, we're the pinnacle of creation. The Bible never says that constellations or nebulae or volcanoes or any animal or any planet or star bears his image. It shows his handiwork. Human beings, pinnacle of creation, we bear God's image. We're made for greatness more than any other part of the creation. Um, and, and by the way, the, you know, lots of applications here. 
But this is an insight. Let's just say this is a window into why loneliness is so crushing. And there's many facets to loneliness, not just one. But one facet of loneliness is that deep, deep down, you know you're supposed to matter. And you want to matter. And you feel like no one sees you. It's crushing. But I want to say this. All right. We tend to go about it the wrong way, but the fact that I want my life to have meaning. I want my life to have impact. I want to matter. I mean, what we're saying is, I want a right and good greatness. That is a good impulse. It's God-given. But you know what? We showed up bent. We We showed up bent, and we don't pursue it the right way. And Jesus, in His love, says... Let me tell you how to have greatness. James, John, it's not your placement around my throne. It's not your resume. It's not you being noticed. It's not you winning all the conversation contests. Here's how you have it. The way to greatness. Verse 41. We already saw this. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him. And not just those two, but everybody. And said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And what would he have in mind? Who were the Gentiles that ruled everything in that area and would lord authority very visibly, publicly? Rome. Even if you were a Jewish peasant and you never laid eyes on Caesar, you saw Roman pageantry, you saw Roman officers. You saw Roman wealth. You saw Jewish wealth. Verse 43, and listen to how Jesus keeps using the phrase, among you. In other words, not just among you twelve, but in the community of God, among the people of God. How is it to be? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's the Greek word diakonos. It's the word from which we derive deacon. If you want to be great, he doesn't say, how dare you want to be great? He says, if you would be great, you must be the diakonos. But now, if you want to take it to the next level, verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, that is strong language. In other words, if, if you want to be great, if you want real greatness among you, you must be the maid. You must be the cook. You must be the servant, the changer of linens and the sweeper of floors. But if you would be the first... If you would be the greatest in the kingdom, you must be a bondservant. You must be the slave, doulos, in bonds, the slave in chains. Then you'll be the greatest. Not what we would have thought. Not what we would have scripted. And by the way, I wouldn't have known this. This is why it's great to have people who are scholars and commentators and that kind of thing. But one New Testament commentator, he cited a passage from Plato 
you know, Greek philosopher. And when, when Mark's Greek language gospel went out in the world, it went very much into a Greek thought and word world. And here's one thing that Plato said. I'm paraphrasing. How can you possibly be happy if you have to serve? He made it the antithesis of happiness, of fulfillment, is to have to serve others. Jesus says it is the way to greatness. But then he says this, verse 45, For even the Son of Man... Now, I'm going to hit the pause button. I'm going to come back to that. But do you know where that comes from? Jesus doesn't walk around calling himself, but I, the Messiah... He frequently calls himself the Son of Man. Do you know where that comes from? And it comes from the the, uh, prophecy of Daniel. And if you read the book of Daniel, there's this vision of God. He's called the Ancient of Days. And when it describes him, you don't have to wonder who this is. This is the living God. But in this vision in Daniel, the Ancient of Days has a son. And he looks like a son of man, and he shines in glory. And the way he's described, you get the sense that even though he's God's son, he is divine himself. That, that language would have been known to a devout Jew. Jesus takes that language and applies it to himself. The son of man is the glorious son of the ancient of days from the prophet Daniel. Now, what is he, what's he like when he comes to earth? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God the Son, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, he had the right to come to earth and look like what he was and be treated like what he was. If that had happened, that would have been appropriate and fitting. And he shelved his rights. He gave up his rights to look like he should look and be treated like he should be treated. He shelved his rights and he became, of all things, a servant. And it says that he gives his life, he says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. There's been a lot of ink spilled about what does that mean? Usually you pay a ransom to, well, a kidnapper? And there were people in the early church that said this must mean that Jesus paid a ransom to the devil. The devil had us and Jesus paid him off. But God doesn't pay off anybody. God doesn't, God's not like over a, crack, over, a, over a barrel because somebody stepped on a crack and broke his back. But he's drawing on Old Testament language. Over and over and over, the Old Testament speaks of God redeems His people. When you redeem something, what do you do? You buy it. You purchase it. Why would God want to purchase selfish people? Why why would God want to, to look at a group of people who show up bent, who show up... Basically, here's what comes naturally to me is that I'm going to matter. I don't care if you matter. In fact, the ideal would be that everybody thinks I matter and that you don't. Or that even if you do matter, you matter so much less than me that I shine by contrast. That would be the ideal, which means we are pitted against each other. That God wants to buy people.
people like that and make them, and he says this over and over in the Old Testament, make them his treasured possession. Make them them, his inheritance. How does he do that? Is he paying off the devil? Is he paying off some other? No. He's buying us through the price that has to be paid. And we talk about this over and over because we need to hear it over and over that God is just. That what would be fair and just would be for God to say, all right, selfish people, all right, self-absorbed people, all right, people that want yourselves to matter more than you want me to matter or be seen. Receive justice for that. And we'd perish. It'd be divine justice. It'd be the cup of His wrath, the cup of His justice. But God says this, I don't want you to drink that cup. My son can drink it for you. He'll come and be the the most beautiful example of selflessness and lowliness and servitude. Like, he will wash the feet of people who are about to run like scalded cats after he invested in them for three years. That's the kind of servant he is. But that's not going to be the extent of it. He'll set you the ultimate example. But then he's going to take on himself your selfishness and be punished for it. He's going to drink the cup of wrath for you. So that why? So that if you believe in him, you you will be purchased. You will have the cup that someone deserves who always put others first, who wanted the other person to matter who wanted the other people to shine, who wanted to serve over and over and over, even serve his enemies. That normal, selfish, self-absorbed believers can drink that cup. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's just a million applications on this, but since we're thinking about this as a church, since we're about to set officers apart for our church, can we think about the church? What hurts your feelings in church? You may not be a regular part of church, so I don't want to exclude you from this, but I, I want to speak to people who have identified themselves with this community or another community. If you're part of a church, what hurts your feelings? Well, you know, we get mishandled, and sometimes people are rude, and that hurts. And we need to try to strive to be careful with each other. Love is not rude. Love is kind. Love is patient. So we should want that with and for each other. But often what hurts our feelings is, I do and I do, and I don't get credit. I do and I do, and I'm not thanked. I do and I do and I'm not recognized. Or that person is tapped to chair that or organize that or serve on that. And I'm not tapped and I give and I give. What's up underneath that? I serve and I serve and I serve. I'm treated like a servant around here. It hurts. But that's what it's like to be a servant. Um. I'm going to say this again in just a moment. 
It makes me emotional to say it. But when you set apart men as elders and deacons, it doesn't make them better than anybody. It doesn't make them more loved by God than anybody. Fellow sinners. But what they are then ratified and empowered and called to is more suffering. We're all called to suffering. But really it says now, you're set apart to take it up a notch. And that's the path of glory. But let me give you this visual. And I'm, really, I'm indebted to Ryan, our music director. When he saw the passage that we were looking at this morning, he, he shared with some of us, this, he said, this piece of art keeps coming to my mind. And since I saw the picture of it, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's a piece of artwork. And it's a chalice, like a chalice you would use for the Lord's Supper. And it's, uh, it's metallic. It's, it's a metal chalice. So it's basically shaped like the ones that we have, except that the, the bottom and the hand, the, where you would place your hand are the most horrible thorns made of the same metal. And around the lip of the cup are these thorns. And the name of this piece of artwork is, Can You Drink the Cup I Drink? Because when you see it, you think, man, if, if, you, if you take that cup up, you'll hurt. We can't die for other sins. We don't do what the Messiah does. But when he says, will you drink the cup that I drank to James and John? They did suffer. Two things and I'm done. If you believe in the Lord Jesus... You are cleansed of your selfishness. If you believe in Jesus, you are cleansed of all the ways that you want to matter more than everybody else. You're clean. Amen? And Jesus calls him to follow him. Don't try to be great through getting the right people to like you or enough people to like you or being the brightest star at work, or the prettiest, or the funniest, or the go-to person, or the most interesting person in the conversation, or the wealthiest, or the greatest philanthropist. Don't try to do that. Follow me into suffering, and it will hurt. But I've gone before you. You'll hurt, and then there'll be glory. You'll achieve greatness now that can't be undone, and it will be rewarded next. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us. Lord Jesus, you set the DNA for the lives of your disciples by taking the way of the cross to inner glory and showing us greatness. Help us. Help us to follow you in the way of the cross. To be great whether that is seen or unseen. To serve whether it's seen or unseen and then to enter your glory. Lord, for the person who wants to matter but has never thought about entrusting themselves to the one who is greatest. Give him or her faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.